Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, and how to front run the opportunity. I'm Ryan Sean Adams. I'm here with David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more bankless. David, what an episode. I know it's an awesome podcast because as soon as we finish recording, I just want to listen to it again. Mm-hmm. That's what happened with this recording. Yeah, to me, this is the through line of crypto. If you want to figure out what crypto is, you need to go all the way back, not just back into the 70s where cryptography was created. We are going all the way back to the 1300s, the late dark ages, because that's where the Renaissance happened. That's where double entry bookkeeping happened. That's where a cultural revolution happened. And the inspiration for this podcast came when I was trying to figure out right after the NFT mania and there was some sort of loose thread about some connection between Ether as a money, blockchain as a system, NFTs as a technology, art as new culture. And so I asked uh, on Twitter, it's like, hey, who has a professor that is teaching them about like early European like history when it comes to wealth, art, and culture? And this guy, Josh, uh, just raised his hand. Is like, I'm not a student. I am the professor. Uh, and he's got a PhD in medieval history and, and European history. Uh, and he's also working in the realm of crypto investments. And so Josh Rosenthal is a fantastic steward of this message that is the same underlying core advances of humanity starting in the Renaissance all the way through crypto, uh, where we are today. And the the power of what Josh was able to lay down is still ringing in my ears. David, I don't think I've heard a podcast like this ever in crypto across any any podcast. I don't think anyone has looked at it through this technical, historical lens and brought these themes out. Uh, and this is really like the first, maybe the first podcast on what what we call in this podcast, the crypto renaissance. And we talk about like all sorts of strange and interesting things. Like what was the life like for a peasant in the Middle Ages? How does that relate to our life today? How did that change in the renaissance? How will our life change from the world we live in today into the crypto renaissance we even talked about demons pooping and like art and like <laughs> like crazy things the medici class mm-hmm. uh the, the popes and all sorts of things so this is a, a tour de force of um culture and societal revolution i feel i feel like at some level i was in the most interesting history class i've ever attended because mm-hmm. it related all the most interesting things about um, you know, the, the wheel of history to like all of the most interesting things about technology and society and the internet and cryptography today. And it was all jam packed in like an hour and a half. So what a, what a cool podcast, man. Yeah, I was telling a Bankly is a marketing guru, meme lord, Michael Wong, about this podcast. And he says, it sounds like some intersection of AP European history and AP Ethereum. Uh, (laughs) And I think that's exactly right. That's exactly what's going on. Um, And and I think we should just go ahead and get right into the episode. But first, a message from these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible. Bankless is proud to be supported by Uniswap. Uniswap is a new paradigm in asset exchange infrastructure. Instead of a cumbersome order book system where trades are matched with other humans, Uniswap is an autonomous piece of software on Ethereum, which is what Ryan and I call a money robot. No human counterparties or centralized intermediaries, just autonomous code on Ethereum. Input the token you want to sell and receive the token you want to buy. Something brand new in the Uniswap ecosystem is the Uniswap Grants program is now accepting applications for grants. We have been saying this for a while and we'll say it again. DAOs have money and they are in need of labor. If you think that you have something to contribute to the Uniswap DAO, apply for a grant to Uniswap. Just look at the size of the Uniswap treasury. 
It's almost $3 billion. This mountain of capital is looking for labor. Do you have something of value to contribute to the Uniswap DAO? No matter how big or small your idea is, you can apply for a uni grant at unigrants.org and help steer Uniswap in the direction that you think it should go. That's exactly what we did to get Uniswap to be a sponsor for Bankless, and you can do the same for your project. Thank you, Uniswap, for sponsoring Bankless. Guys, we've entered a bull market. Now is the time to start building your crypto empire, and you should do it on Gemini. You already know Gemini is the world's most trusted crypto exchange, but now you can do even more than trade. You can earn. You can take one of your crypto assets and park it in an interest-earning Gemini account where you can get up to 7.4% annualized. There's nothing more satisfying than earning passive income on an asset that you're already bullish on. This is a crypto-native superpower. You know what's coming soon too? A Gemini crypto credit card. Yep, that's a credit card, not a debit card. It gives you rewards and hard money crypto assets, not something inflationary like airline miles or hotel points. It gives you up to 3% cash back in crypto. The card is coming in Q2, but you should get on the waiting list right now and we'll include a link. See what I mean? This is more than just trading. Gemini is your bridge to crypto for the bull market. Open a free account in less than three minutes at Gemini.com slash GoBankless. Get $15 in Bitcoin after you trade your first $100. That's Gemini.com slash GoBankless. Bankless Nation, we are super excited to introduce you to our next guest. This is Josh Rosenthal. He holds a PhD in medieval and early modern European history, so he's a historian. He also received a Fulbright scholarship to Sorbonne's Institute for Advanced Studies. He's worked at a think tank mixing culture, history, and technology, which is what we're going to talk about today. But he's no longer a practicing historian. He is now a partner at Sixth Event Cataclysmic Capital, which supports early stage founders targeting cataclysmic impact. One of those impact areas is certainly in the crypto arena. Josh, welcome to Bankless. It's fantastic to have you. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing very well. Pleasure to be here, guys. Thank you very much. Josh, this is a lens we have not yet explored on Bankless, but David and I are super excited to do so. This is like the historical lens, but not just historical because this is interdisciplinary. This blends culture as well, socioeconomical um, technology. So before we get into this podcast, I want to ground the listener with sort of a, a mental roadmap of where we're going, because I think we're hitting four important aspect areas in our conversation with you today, Josh, and we're going to weave in and out of them. The first is we're going to talk about the Middle Ages, an era of centralization, uh, and then the Renaissance and Reformation, an era of decentralization, and compare that to the era that we're in, call it the nation state era, and this new crypto renaissance that is upon us. That's one of the through lines here. The second is how technology is a catalyst. So we're going to talk about the communication technology that made the Renaissance happen, the printing press. We're going to talk about double entry bookkeeping, the ledger, and how those are similar to the internet, a new communication protocol for the world, and crypto, which is a ledger for the world. And then we're going to talk about how these changes affect society from an economic cultural perspective to an institutional shift. That's number three. And fourthly, I think we're going to leave the listener with some action items, how they can position themselves for this cataclysmic change that is upon us. You ready for all this, Josh? <laughs> I think I am. I think that's very well said. It's a lot to cover, but we'll do our best. Okay, Josh, so I'm going to hand it off to you now, and we're going to explore this agenda. So can you talk about 
um, why some of these through lines matter, why they're important, and uh, add anything to what I said earlier in the intro. Yeah, thank you very much, Ryan. I think that's a, a great summary. I'd, I'd like to take us back to, to a moment in time that we might not typically think about, and that's in the later Middle Ages. Um, and you know, sometimes you hear it ta- spoken of as if it's the Middle Ages are a dark period. That's probably not the best word. I think the best word to describe it is aggregated. And so I'd like to walk through two different through lines, value and information, and then uh, look at how new technology, new financial technology and information technology essentially unraveled these power hierarchies and what happened next. So starting with the Middle Ages, if we were to describe the Middle Ages in one word, aggregated would probably be a good word to use. And so if we were to think about value, value was really aggregated. And by that, I mean that wealth was concentrated. You know, wealth is fundamentally land, and the Roman Catholic Church is the largest landowner, owning up to a third the land in Europe. Uh, and options for economic output are were you know, primarily agricultural. You know, there's land and animals and crops, and there's some guild-based manufacturing, but that's a, that tends to be you know, fairly small. People tended to follow in family vocations, whether it was farming or craftsmanship. And so on the whole, wealth was super concentrated, and it tended to be displayed in precious metals. You know, there's some patronage of the arts, but these were subject to sumptuary laws where the power structures were regulating how money could be spent. And you did have decent amount of finance, but that likewise was subject to usury laws, um, interest limited, the, uh, the powers that be controlling how money actually flowed. And so wealth was accumulated through generational consolidation, you know, generation after generation, slowly concentrating wealth. And as you might expect, power likewise was consolidated. In the Middle Ages, there was a contest for power. There were two hierarchies. Uh, one was political and one was religious. And they were at odds for, for a number of centuries. And this ultimately ended up with a clear win in this contest for authority with, uh, with the religious coming out on top, where the Holy Roman Empire was ritualistically humiliated by the Pope in uh, the 11th century. And that was largely because religion wasn't a private affair. It was the social and cultural institutional ties that united economic power. And so when the Pope had excommunicated the Holy Roman Emperor, all the economic contracts and political fidelity that was obligated to him were, it was all rendered, you know, instantly uh, mute. And so the Holy Roman Emperor begged the Pope's forgiveness. And at that point, the religious hierarchy really took dominance and achieved a type of stasis for for several hundred years up until the birth of the Reformation, um, where it was symbiotic stasis. And so in the Middle Ages, if you have concentrated wealth and consolidated power, naturally, as you might expect, culture was largely top-down. And so that flowed from the church and the nobility. And there were a limited number of fine artists, and they are commissioned by a super-concentrated elite. It's mostly paintings, some music, very limited amount of text. Um, there was definitely popular culture um, that was bottom-up, but it was controlled and channeled through, through approved means, things like morality plays and carnival. Most of the culture was extra textual, which means it was based on oral interaction. And so if that's an idea of value being concentrated, where wealth is consolidated and power is consolidated and the culture flows top down, the way that the power structures achieved that type of stasis, the way they held on to, to power was fundamentally by centralizing information and controlling who had access to what information and how they're able to share it. And so the other through line I'd like to look at for just a minute before we look at what changed in the the Reformation and Renaissance is around this idea of centralized information. In the latter Middle Ages, just before the birth of the Reformation and Renaissance, information wasn't just centralized. it It was fundamentally guarded by authority. And so political and religious uh, entities were mutually reinforcing, uh, creating documents that uh, were controlled by a scribal class, 
They're encoded in a language that most people couldn't read. Very few people could read, and most of them couldn't read Latin. And the documents themselves were, in a particular siglia, a type of shorthand that very few people could read. They're stored in archives. They're hard to access. They're hard to keep safe. And even if you did have rights, quote unquote, in the documents, there's very limited remediation. The courts were at the service of the, the noblesse and the clerical estate. Getting access to those documents was incredibly difficult, partially because the transmission of them was limited. So, you know, if literacy is around 5%, most people stay within 10 miles of their home throughout a lifetime, these manuscripts are incredibly rare and scarce and inaccessible. They cost more than the annual salary of a person. And typically, the manuscripts are created at institutions which are centralized for their creation. This is the rise of the university and you know the monasteries and the nunnery. So just to take a step back and summarize what we've talked about, you know, in the latter Middle Ages, you know, there were two particular two particular power dynamics that served to create these hierarchies. The first was aggregating value and concentrating wealth and controlling who had access to money and how it was used. And the second was centralizing information, controlling how ideas about money, wealth and culture could be shared, and these were fundamentally centralized. And it's against that backdrop that we can now take a turn and, and look at the Renaissance and Reformation and, and what changed. And what fundamentally changed was the advent of two new types of technology, which gave rise to a new class and a new expression of art and identity. Yeah, so Josh, let me uh, reiterate to you the through lines that I'm seeing here, whereas uh, it's really the church that dictated the world, right? And they were able to dictate the world because they had all the wealth. And wealth was largely defined by land. Uh, and and then also through that power, they also had a monopoly on information or what was true. What was true was dictated by the church. And, uh, and you, you alluded to that there was some bottom-up cultural manifestations, right? Like uh, some bottom-up celebration of culture, but it was through perhaps what we would call permissioned uh, vehicles, right? Like it was only bottom-up insofar as the church allowed that culture to manifest. And the reason why the, the church was able to do that was because they had all the power. They had um, they had the, the wealth. They had the land, uh, and they had uh, the they had uh, all the, the data, if you will, in forms of of knowledge. Do, where does um, physical power come into this conversation? Does might and and the sword uh, fit into this conversation as well? Yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a, that's a great question. And so uh, yeah, these power hierarchies are land and economic, but also. Uh, also uh, military. Um, and so that was, that was the great tension in the early part of the Middle Ages where the, uh, the political estate, which would be the Holy Roman Empire, was at odds with the church. And so there was a question for, for who would ultimately control temporal or physical or military authority. And the church had claimed that they had, uh, they had authority to wield that temporal power. And as you might expect, the political apparatus disagreed. And so in that great contest that lasted a that lasted uh, a number of centuries. Ultimately, the church won that. They won that at, uh, at Canassa, where the Holy Roman Empire, the, the head of the entire political state and all the military apparatus, was in the ground on the snow, wearing penitential rags, begging the Pope's forgiveness um, because the Pope had excommunicated him. So all the ties of military allegiance between the emperor to his knights and to everyone else in the noblesse was all predicated, it was all linked in a causal chain around being a, a Christian and being baptized. So when the Pope excommunicated the individual, 
all of those contracts, including not just economic contracts, but military contracts, were rendered null and void. And so at that point, you know, most historians would say that the church took, you know, supreme dominance in terms of that hierarchy. But then, you know, that was around, you know, uh, the 12th century. After that, for the next two or 300 years, uh, the church and the, if you want to call it the state, achieved a type of symbiotic stasis where they're both power hierarchies and they became more and more and more inextricably linked. Can we talk a little bit about the day in the life of an average member of society? So what you just set up for us in the Middle Ages time period was kind of the life of, I don't know if I call it a peasant, let's say, the life of the average person was very much uh, permissioned, was very much um, you know, top down, was very much the, the opposite of what Bankless preaches, which is self-sovereignty and freedom, and very much restricted in the ways you could participate in the culture, in the ways that you could participate in the economy. I mean, no such thing, I'm sure, as a, an entrepreneur. <laughs> what would an entrepreneur do in, in this era? Um, very hard to rise above, it seems. Paint the picture of a day in the life of an average peasant, an average family, an average unit of society. Now, that's a great question. I think that's I think that's right on all accounts. The vast majority of individuals were farmers, and uh, uh, it was fundamentally agriculture, subsistence-based farming. And so you had you had never been more than a few miles from your farm. You probably didn't own your farm. Your farm was owned by a landowner. You might not be allowed to leave without permission. Um, this hierarchy isn't just hierarchy in terms of economics and military, but it's hierarchy in terms of permission around identity, what you can do, how you can move, what you can acquire, how you can use the things you acquire, how you can express yourself, what you can say, what you can think. And so in these two great hierarchies, you start off with the emperor and then go down into the the various princes and cities and then into the knights and then all the way down into, you know, agricultural workers. You're at the bottom of the pyramid. And on the spiritual hierarchy, it's the same thing. You start off with, you know, the pope and then you move into bishops and various curates and then down into your local priest and down to yourself. So the short answer is you're working in the fields um, from dawn till dusk uh, every single day. And that's literally all you're thinking about. There isn't additional capital, you know, at your disposal. You know, you do have exceptions where you have, you know, some guild-based manufacturing, and you might be able to be a blacksmith or something like that, but you can't just set up shop and hang out a shingle. Your father had to be a blacksmith, or you had to have permission from the guild to, to be able to set up shop, and you had to have permission from the, 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 the noble authority to be able to have a, a title which allowed you to actually practice. So at every fundamental junction of life, things were permission, not just economically, but also uh, around identity. And the way they controlled that was through the permissioning of information, you couldn't share anything that popped into your head in terms of speech. Um, and, and documents were, were the sources of control, and those were carefully guarded. Those weren't at loose in the, in the population you know, whatsoever. Is that helpful? It's a little difficult for us to imagine today, I think. The image that's being conjured in my brain is that there's a very strong lack of churn in this world. Right. The, if you are a, a aspiring young lad who wants to do something cool with your life, it's just you're, you're just not in the environment that facilitates such an aspiration. Right. You and perhaps you don't even have the, the capabilities to even think about something to aspire to because you're just not in an environment that caters to such 
creative new thinking. You are kind of locked in this in this world that seems very fixed. And uh, I, I also want to put an image of into the listeners' heads because I think this is going to be one of perhaps the overarching through line for this entire podcast of the difference between the tower and the square or the hierarchy and the network, right? And where, you know, hierarchies over time grow larger and larger and more rigid and, and versus the network or the town square, which is a flat uh, flat topology where everyone is treated equally. Uh, and there seems to be a pendulum shift that goes between these two ends of the spectrum. And right now in, in the late dark ages, we have an extremely hier hierarchical religious structure that dictates the world top down using their power of wealth, culture, knowledge, and influence. And that's where this story starts, or at least this podcast starts, which is the late Middle Ages with a very hierarchical structure that really determines what the individual can really do with their lives. I don't want to get ahead of our story, but it's a, it's important to understand that those ideas probably wouldn't have even popped into their head, right? It was the water, the air they breathed, the water in which they swam. And so, you know, we're in a very similar situation today where, you know, political and ideological hierarchy is merged into a nation state and, and we're at the subject of its permission and all sorts of facets of our life. And we, we tend not to think about that on a daily basis, just like the average, you know, medieval farmer wouldn't have been thinking about that. You know, for example, I tried to, I tried to uh, purchase a Bitcoin conference pass for a team member, right? And, uh, you know, I purchased that, you know, down in Miami and, uh, the payment was declined. And when I spoke to American Express, they said, yeah, we know it's not fraudulent. We just, we don't like the subject matter and we don't want to process that. So we won't let you spend your money in that way. Um, that's their policy. And so we're at the subject of, of their permission on that. Um, so, so we're in a very similar situation, just like it didn't enter their head. It tends not to enter our head. And when we say an entrepreneur starting something, that wouldn't have been a category they had. And, uh, you know, very similar, you know, we'll see the rise of the mercantile class where people do set up shops. Um, it was very difficult for them to take a step back and appreciate the historical significance and say, perhaps I can do something other than be a farmer. Just like it's it's difficult for us to take a step back and say, perhaps I can do something other than work for a company. Perhaps I can work for a DAO. That would have been that would have been something that wasn't quite on their mental map at that point in time. I don't know if that's a helpful analogy or not. And Josh, this is excellent foreshadowing of topics that we're going to address uh, later in the podcast. And I hope the listener gets the sense of what it's like for the average agrarian peasant. I mean, you were illiterate, you were poor, basically every day was just trying to survive. Um, this undercurrent that leads to elements we're going to talk about in the Renaissance and Reformation is this sense of disillusionment with power structure. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that was bubbling up? Because you were talking about how, well, you know, a lot of people in this situation wouldn't have known better. It was kind of the air they breathed. They wouldn't have known there was another possibility. And yet the seeds of the Renaissance and Reformation were starting to be planted. And there was this sense of disillusionment with the power structure. Can you talk about that before we lead into the next chapter of our story? Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely a, a sense of of disillusionment and and, you know, death was a way of life um, and hierarchy was a way of life. And so when you think about mortality rates, uh, you know, the, the primary popular culture was uh, death is among us. It was it was morbid. It's Ars Moriandi, you know, skeletons dancing. And it's not just because you see, 
you know, members of your family dying in front of you on a regular basis, it's partially because you have a lack of agency. Um, and so what, what are you going to do? Um, you, what choice do you have but to accept the hierarchy? You can, you can revolt. And at times you did have, you know, peasant revolts. Um, those were quickly, swiftly, and effectively put down. And so essentially you're operating in, in an ether where, where you didn't have information to other people in a community. And when you're isolated, that tends to create a, a marked sense of disillusionment. It was in everyone's best interest to keep things in a status quo. And so um, in some sense, it was probably fortuitous that, you know, life was, you know, nasty, hard and, and brutish and that you were subsistence farming because uh, if you had too much time to think, you you wouldn't have liked your chances for improving your situation. And uh, as you mentioned before, the bottom-up culture that you do have bubbling up is largely around celebration and blowing off steam around harvest and carnival. Um, and it was, it was very, uh, very functional and very utilitarian. You know, the nature of the change, you know, there's definite cultural undercurrents where occasionally people, people question the hierarchy, but that, uh, that tends to be put down very effectively. And the reason why that was put down whenever that would bubble up, it would bubble out throughout the Middle Ages, but it was put down um, with great precision, speed, and, and, uh, and effect, partially because the power structures controlled the information. Those ideas couldn't spread. They are able to quarantine them um, very effectively. And so that's one of the, the fundamental transitions that happens with the Reformation. The ideas that were always latent in the latter Middle Ages actually, actually had a way to express themselves in a way that was not only permissionless, but that was very difficult for the institutional power hierarchies to, uh, to put down. So I think we've set up what the Middle Ages was like for the average commoner, what the, how the society was structured, how the economy was structured. But then came this change, and that gets us kind of to the second chapter that we mentioned, this Age of Enlightenment, this Renaissance and Reformation. So can you talk about how that change came to be and what it represented for people? Yeah, that was a fundamental change. It was absolutely cataclysmic. And I think we underappreciate the nature of that change. That's why I, I definitely appreciate taking a moment and sketching out the kind of bleak, uh, the bleak situation of an average individual in the Middle Ages. Because we take for granted now the ability to, to act without permission to a certain degree or to share information or to communicate value. But that was, that was only a result of the Renaissance and Reformation. And so what happened was there was an advent of two types of technology, one around sharing value and another round of sharing information. And both of them were decentralized or distributed or permissionless. And them coming together uh, created a situation that uh, a number of individuals participated in. It gave rise to a new whole class of, in, of people, a working class, mercantile class, entrepreneurial class. And that class of people, it wasn't just that they were something new. Um, it was the idea that something could be new. After a thousand years of stasis, there was new technology which gave rise to a new community, and they expressed itself through a through a new type of art, which was likewise a technology. So just to take a step back in the, the Renaissance and Reformation, if we follow these two through lines, uh, value in the Middle Ages was aggregated, and that becomes distributed in the Renaissance and Reformation. And that happened through around the advent of a new type of financial technology, something called double-entry bookkeeping or ledger-based technology. And for your audience, they may be familiar with this, but uh, in, in the 14th century, this was this was radical. It was magic. The idea of a ledger where assets equaled liabilities and equities with the left side of a book being you know, debit and the right side credit. It was popularized in the 14th century by a Florentine merchant in the south of France. And the Renaissance is really a rebirth or a rediscovery or a return to the sources ad fontes. And this double-entry booking was used in the Roman Empire. Pliny the Elder mentions it in 70 AD. And there's Jewish communities in North Africa 
using it. But essentially, the Medici family and the Medici bank went back to the sources, discovered the technology, and popularized it, and used double-entry booking to completely rework the financial system. It it allowed, previously you had to stop everything and have a centralized accounting. If you can imagine not knowing you know, where your dollars are flowing at any given point, point in time. I'll leave the parallels off for now. Um, but it was it was like magic to be able to, to have an accurate accounting at any point in time. And it massively uh, increased the power, leverage, velocity, composability, and granularity of money, preventing duplicitous books and false forks. And it gave rise to you know credit in a, in a very specific system, as well as a new host of financial products. And the Medici, and not just the Medici, but the whole host of families and banks that that used this uh, uh, really became new players on the scene. It was a new group vying for power. For a thousand years, it had been church or military, political, and now there's another group of financiers. Um, and so they they bought their way into noble estates by buying titles, and they also bought their way into ecclesiastical or church estates. But fundamentally, it was an economic rise to power, powered by this ledger-based technology, which. Uh, which, uh, which essentially turbocharged their economic fortunes and allowed them to buy their way into status. And then, you know, following this line of value, these new players expressed their status through a new type of art. And it wasn't just Machiavellian, I have money and I want to buy art to reshape and recraft my narrative on how I establish my money and what it means for the society. That's true, but it's a bit deeper than that. Um, they cemented their status around using a new type of art. And so in the Middle Ages, everything was flat and symbolic. You can think of it as 2D. Um, people didn't look like people. They looked like caricatures. And if you're in the Middle Ages, you've never seen a window or a mirror. And so the idea of seeing a reflection of you or a representation of an image that looks realistic uh, was unheard of. And as the Renaissance artists turned back to the Roman and classical sources, they were able to create hyper-realistic renditions. It was it was their VR and AR of the time where they were able to go back and paint pictures and do sculptures where it was just like being there and where you saw someone else in an image. It was like magic. And so the Renaissance art was really an exercise in technology around this rediscovery of source material. And these are names which we still know today. It's Botticelli and Leonardo and Michelangelo. And this is how Florence becomes the, the cultural center of Europe. And so part of it's a flex around this new mercantile class, but part of it is a qualitative and quantitative alignment of identity around not just the idea of their status, but the idea that someone else could be new. Um, the idea that it wasn't just you know church and political power as it had been for a thousand years, but that uh, but that uh, a new player could enter the game. And as we chatted about in the Middle Ages, the idea of something new when it had entered their minds, now here was something new, and it had entered not just their minds, but it manifested in the world through this technology. And so the Medici ran with that. They actually ended up taking the papacy as you know Leo X was a Medici and took the throne of France with Catherine marrying in. Um, so this became de facto, they essentially took over this power hierarchy, this financial class. And when they took it over, they changed the nature of what was meaningful. Whereas in the Middle Ages, there was sacred and profane, there was holy and religious, and there was everything else. 
um, with this advent of the class, you know, tied to some of the doctrines that Martin Luther and the Reformation were espousing at the time, this new financial class rethought what it meant to uh, to be holy and to be doing God's work. Uh, it wasn't just in a monastery. It was actually doing your job, even engaging in finance in the world. And so while the Holy Roman Empire was uh, was in the bit fits and throes of international conflict with the Turks and you know seizing land across in the New World, they essentially were using this new proto-capitalism and this new financial ledger-based technology to, uh, to fund themselves. And as the Reformation essentially dissolved the monasteries where people were cloistered in for the transmission of these documents, this new uh, huge, you know, up to 10% of the population are let loose you know, from the monasteries and they tend to be literate and they don't want to go back to farming. And so it introduced a whole new type of people into the workforce and they, they found things that were good to do in and of the world itself instead of being cloistered away. So, you know, books that you may be familiar with are like Max Weber and the Protestant Ethic and Spirit of Capitalism. The point is that the common itself became something worth doing and doing your job in the world, whether that was entrepreneurship or just interacting with your family and with your community, became a good thing to do. So that expressed itself in the art of the times. These are names like Rembrandt and Vermeer and Rubin. Um, this is why you have the ubiquitous fruit bowl, right? That the, something as simple as a piece of fruit is, is meaningful in itself. And popular culture becomes significant as opposed to just sacred. So I'll stop there. That would be the through line where we move from aggregated value to distributed value, really powered by this financial technology, which gives rise to a new class of individual who express themselves through a new type of technology endemic, uh, through a new type of art endemic to the same technology. So the through lines that I'm seeing, I think are so salient with what we are seeing today with the crypto world. And so I just want to rehash them and go through them again. We Humanity invents this new thing called double entry bookkeeping, and it's this new technology. It's actually, it's not one thing. It's not like we discovered gold or we discovered this new item. It's an idea. It's something that we can all share. We can pass around this idea of double entry bookkeeping. And that is like, it's like a mind virus. It passes from person to person. And, uh, and then all of a sudden this technology just becomes instantiated and this technology itself both creates value and allows for value to churn at the same time. And so we're finally seeing churn in the world and this allows wealth to uh, not only be created, but also to proliferate around the people who didn't previously have wealth. They were just farmers now that they can access wealth. The other through line that I'm seeing is like when there is wealth that is created, art starts to be created and culture starts to be created and specifically new forms of art what seems to whereas old art was 2d new art is 3d it's a it's a new magnitude of what art can be and not only can we create new art but people can participate in that art not only in its creation but in its also its appreciation and it was all started with double entry bookkeeping. And in the crypto world, we have these new blockchains, which are new ledger systems. And we also have new art forms in NFTs and digital art expression. People are like getting head over heels about like, are NFTs valuable? Why are people paying for them? Are they cool? And to some degree, it just does not matter because people are paying for them and appreciating this new art form that is just blowing the minds of people who are not yet up to speed with this new culture that is being created. And finally, as a result of all this creation of all this new wealth, this creation of all this new art is really changing 
how people perceive their own individual role in the world. It's like, I can make a difference. I can do something for me, for myself, for I, and it fits into the rest of the world. Uh, and so like the, the drawing the connections between the Renaissance and what we are seeing come out of, you know, crypto networks, Ethereum, DeFi, I think is so incredibly strong and really made very saliently by the transition from a hierarchical late Middle Ages society into a more distributed, more networked world that we saw in the Renaissance and Reformation. Uh, Josh, is there anything that you want to clarify or add on uh, to that analysis? No, I think that's very well stated. We could go in a couple different directions, and there's there's even there's even analogies in some of the details that we could go into, the type of art, you know, whether it's generative art versus... Th there's a bunch of different ways we could take that, but I think let's just keep it focused for the audience because that's that's absolutely salient, and those are those are the main points to make, you know, very well said. So absolutely. So that's the that's the through line of value. And, you know, the fundamental change to that was, you know, the hierarchy, it wasn't just in, in stasis anymore. There's a new player in the game and and they were expressing themselves. They're able to enter the game by engaging in finance and that created mobility and velocity. And then they fused their identity. They, they used it as a lens through which to view, you know, the world and themselves around this art and the art had a particular type of expression which was tied to the way that they had made their money. It was a rebirth and re, uh, return to the sources around double entry bookkeeping just as it was return to the sources around, you know, this hyper realistic, you know, fresco based, you know, detailed type of art versus 2D. Um, the way that they, so one question someone might ask, and this is what you had asked earlier, Ryan, you know, as this was bubbling up throughout the Middle Ages, you know, what happened? This was crushed again and again and again and again. And so why wasn't the Renaissance and Reformation crushed in the way that the previous, uh, the previous attempts at this sort of reform were crushed? And part of the answer to that question is around now they have money and there's a new player in the game. Now they're able to really coalesce around identity through this art. But the third leg of the stool that's incredibly salient is there's a new type of not just financial technology, but information technology that essentially is likewise permissionless and prevents it from prevents it from being uh, boxed in and quarantined. And so, whereas in the Middle Ages, you know, information was centralized, in the Reformation, information was fundamentally decentralized, and it was really around this permissionless tech, which was uh, which was just arguably just as important as the advent of financial ledger-based tech. And so, with the uh, with the Middle with you know the 14th century, Gutenberg popularized this new type of technology, which had radical decentralization. You know, the printing press didn't have a kill switch, and it was this fundamental challenge to the institutions of power and transformed them. It placed them in a conundrum and uh, and eventually won them over, and then generated this whole class of meme artists that happened to topple an empire. So on permissionless tech, you know, ideas could be could be. You didn't need permission to share an idea, whereas in the Middle Ages, uh, information was recorded on a manuscript, which is a piece of parchment or or a piece of paper where things are written by hand. It's incredibly expensive, more than a year's worth of salary. It's limited. It's slow. It's difficult to to archive and protect. With the printing press, um, they could anyone could print. You know, uh, nobles and Roman Catholic Church attempted to regulate the industry and required people printers to register. You can think about it like KYC almost. And some people, of course, complied. But all it took was a rogue printer and a room off the grid in a few hours, and somebody had documents they could they could send everywhere at such speed that they were almost redundant. And you can think about it in terms of permaweb. And so this new culture was born with an explosion in the number of tax 
and it, it created new formats as well, where originally the print-based culture was a replication of what had been done in manuscript, meaning if you know you had an academic dispute between closed doors and somebody took notes on it, the first generation of printing would print that and it would be in a very similar format. The second generation of printing in the Reformation created a new medium which was endemic to the nature of the technology, meaning instead of just reproducing things as they were before, they created these pamphlets. They're called Flugschriften. It was a, it was, you know, a big broadsheet which had an image on it and big bold you know, type and just limited words. And even if you weren't literate, you could understand what was going on. And if you were semi-literate, you could get the gist of it and someone could read it to you. And so you know, one way you can think about it is, is a shift of uh, what happened with newspapers papers, eventually putting, starting out by putting PDFs online and then moving to an interactive format. That's what happened with this, this print-based format um, where they pushed these flugschriften or these pamphlets which had images on them and conveyed radical ideas and a family could now afford one or a traveler could pack his bag full of them and, and share them all over. And it wasn't just that the ideas themselves were radical, which they were and we can get into, but the idea that anyone could share an idea. You didn't need permission to share this idea. That was a, a fundamental breakthrough. And so it, it posed a, a real challenge to the institutional power structures. Um, you know, if you're, if you're the Roman Catholic Church or a political regime which isn't favorable to this, and you've always claimed that you have the sole authority to create an idea, much less share an idea, and now ideas are being shared through this new print culture, what are you going to do? Are you going to just sit back and let it gain ground and let it gain popularity? That's one option. The only other option is to engage in that print culture itself and uh, to engage in the, the back and forth uh, to print your own material. But if you do that, you can see the point that you're the only one who has authority to create and distribute information. You legitimize the competition. And so, uh, so that's ultimately what they ended up doing, the latter option, and thereby legitimizing the competition. And, uh, and this created an explosion of information at scale, which meant it very difficult to put back in the put back in the bottle. And there's a whole there's a whole uh, genesis of audit chains and creation and transmission and a new marketplace of remixes and compendiums and copies without permission. And so this this advent of print-based technology, which was fundamentally permissionless, was one of the reasons why it was very difficult uh, for for anyone to uh, to to keep the stasis that had dominated the Middle Ages. And part of that was the nature of the printing press itself, that people were generating ideas. And then part of it was the ideas they generated. And the ideas they generated were, were very radical in terms of the, uh, challenging those claims of authority. I want to put myself in the place of a bankless listener, because if you're a typical bankless listener absorbing bankless content, what Josh is just talking about probably sent some, some shivers down your back, right? Because you're immediately seeing the parallels with crypto, right? So we have the Middle Ages, which was an era of, of centralization, top-down authority, limited self-sovereignty, uh, very permission, not permissionless. Now we have the advent of something new. They didn't know it was, called, it was going to be later called a renaissance at the time. Um, exactly. But there were two incredibly important technologies, permissionless technologies, open technologies, distributed decentralized technologies that came about. The first was a value transfer protocol. We use that term protocol uh, as kind of a you know technology, sort of a shared coordination tool for society. That was double entry bookkeeping. So a new permissionless ledger technology, if you will, for uh, value transfer. And you've got the second piece of technology that comes about at the same time, and that is a new communication protocol, a new permissionless communication protocol. Wow, interesting. We've got this rise of the Medici, uh, maybe a 
<laughs> a ledger native, a crypto native class that starts to change the society um, from, from the bottom to the top, starts to gain influence, starts to influence culture uh, in art in all sorts of ways. And the really the the reason, the argument that you're making, Josh, the reason for the Reformation and the Renaissance, this new era, was actually uh, technology in nature. And it's interesting because, look, I'm not, you know, I've gone down, I, amateur historian, I enjoy history, all of these things, but I haven't heard that argument emphasized as much that the Renaissance itself was actually, the catalyst for the Renaissance was these two permissionless technologies, a new communication protocol, I mean, it sounds similar to the internet now, uh, a new ledger uh, protocol, sounds maybe similar to, to crypto, I'm sure we'll get to those things. But how, why do you, why is your position, Josh, that, um, it was really these technologies that brought about the Renaissance and influenced everything else. Uh, why were those the catalysts? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I think it's a it's somewhat one of the reasons why I'm not a historian anymore, just because of the lack of a practical applicability in terms of applying the tools of history to uh, to the current state. Um, that's why uh, <laughs> that's why when crypto first came on the scene and we had you know sold the previous company which we did a publicly traded company and started investing in crypto back in 17 I was immediately struck by the idea that crypto wasn't just a technology or a new type of technology it was a new way of social organization and the parallels to to what I had studied in history were were immediate and salient and and that was such a large transformation that uh that uh, I couldn't not get in on it. And I think part of it is because historians are, are people in their time. Sometimes we forget about that. Um, just as if you looked at a medieval historian at that point in time, they wouldn't have been able to, to articulate. Uh, they would have looked at the things on the surface of the ocean. They would have said, well, this emperor died and this next emperor took over and this pope did this and the next pope did that. They're looking at kind of great men in history. But underneath with the currents, uh, those, are, those are fundamentally driven by 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 what you might call transmission vectors. And those become technological in the early modern era around the Reformation. And so it's not a it's not a trendy thing to look at in, in history in terms of today. But I think I think it's not just that it's technology, it's that it's permissionless and distributed technology. And that fundamentally changes the nature of history in that it it allows ideas to to be communicated without coordination, which means there is no kill switch where previously an emperor or pope could put their finger here and stop a movement that didn't happen this time with the Renaissance and Reformation, partially because of this technology. And in fairness, I mean, there are we could go on. We could do philosophical or theological kind of context or all of this. You know, in some sense, this was a return to the sources, right? Ad fontes, Renaissance. The the ledger-based technology wasn't de novo. It wasn't new. It was a return to what had been done in the Roman uh, Empire. The art and the hyper-realism, although it had been lost for a thousand years, it was a return to what had been done. The printing press, uh, the printing press largely was new, but it was it was popularized and met that moment at the precise time when the financial technology unlocked it. And so why do I think this drives history? Uh, partially because, you know, rather than saying there's great men of history taking agency, I think communities actually create history. But the, the historical problem for communities to actually act in a coordinated effort has been how do you achieve that coordination, both in terms of value and money and in information for, for orchestrating it. And so these, these aren't just technologies for the sake of technology. So they get at the, the two particular things that drive history. How do you motivate people and compensate them? And how do you share uh, ideas in a way that can't be locked?
I don't know if that's a good answer to your question, but that's at least how I think about it. It's a great answer. Oh my God, communities yeah. create history. That is uh, that that is tweetable, sir. And I, I think <laughs> I think bankless listeners are are continuing to see the parallels here. I I want to before we leave, you know, the two technologies, the new distributed ledger technology and the new communication uh, protocol, the the printing press. I want to talk maybe a little bit about how those how those intersect because both of those technologies not only are they permissionless but they're also unstoppable. And as you hinted at, um, you know, authorities did try to stop them in various ways. Like let's let's try to put a restriction AML KYC on these printing presses. That didn't work out so well. But it was also not just one technology, but both of them to, together. Sort of the confluence of them. And uh, bankless listener, if you were beginning to see the confluence of our new distributed uh, communication protocol, which which is TCP/IP, which is which is the internet, which is a, a meme and coordination uh, propagation layer, and that's that we, we've said often uh, before that cr- crypto uh, and th- this new distributed ledger technology would not have been possible, of course, with without the internet, but also because. The internet serves as a, a meme propagation layer and a narrative propagation layer that allows a new distributed self-sovereign money system to grow from the bottom up. And that's kind of what we're seeing with the confluence of this new distributed ledger, um, double entry bookkeeping system, and, and the printing press. Because people could communicate using modern par- parlance. They could communicate memes and spin narratives and distribute them to the people at a rate that the authorities couldn't stop. And so this enabled bottom-up revolutions. Let's talk about that a little more. No, that's great. It's, yeah, the speed and velocity. I mean, essentially, just taking a step back, you know, we because we're in this historical moment, we, we see the internet as different from crypto, right? We think, uh, you know, oh, the internet happened and now it's coming into its legs and, and now crypto has started. But, but really... You know, one way to look at it is they're they're part and parcel of the same thing. I mean, the, the cypherpunks wanted information without kill switches and value without kill switches, and we saw the advent of the internet. Uh, um, but it, it's always had a kill switch, and so only right now with permaweb, what I mean is, you know, Arweave or blockchain-based, you know, communication technology, which is cryptographic in nature, that really is the the fulfillment of the internet. And so, in that sense, communicating bytes of information or bytes of information that represent value are fundamentally the same thing. You know, it, it's only been a few years. We'll look back on this in a period of history and say, this was all cryptography. The internet was was cryptography when it finally came into its own right. Um, and so, yeah, your point is well taken. That allow, both of those being permissionless, it allows a speed and velocity. Bottom-up always wins, and self-organization always wins. It's, it's bizarre over the cathedral every single time because uh, when you have 10,000 people you know, engaging and organizing, it's very difficult to tamp that down with command and control. And that was essentially what happened in the in the Middle Ages. The the authorities weren't able to do that, and so they had to they couldn't ignore the mediums. So they had to participate in it, and by participating in it, they thereby legitimized it. Um, uh, you can make all sorts of analogies for 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 fiat and digital currency if you felt like doing that. Um, 
the other thing I guess I would say is that the ideas that they were sharing, you know, they're definitely not just kind of memes and silliness for the sake of silliness, but memes, as we know, have this semiotic function where they they communicate something broader and more important than themselves. And so the ideas that they were sharing, you know, were, were fundamentally uh, challenging to the power structures, right? So people like Martin Luther, they looked back and they, they used these same tools and techniques and audited this source code of power, you know, where the Roman Catholic Church had built an economic system around penance, you know, doing penance, giving alms, purchasing indulgences, you know, Luther and company looked back, you know, from the Latin into the Greek and, you know, penitentium agite, do penance becomes metanoia, which is repent. And so the, the power system, it, it isn't extant anymore. And so all the economics go crashing down around that. Or, you know, you had asked earlier, Ryan, about, uh, you know, the political and military arm and, and layer in the Middle Ages. Well, the Roman Catholic Church had won that, won that power struggle partially because they were able to get the emperor to, to, to repent and do penance, but partially because they had this document. And this document was called the Donation of Constantine. And it was the Roman Emperor Constantine giving temporal and military authority to the church. Well, um, that was shown to be a, middle, uh, a forgery from the Middle Ages using these new forensic uh, source code technologies. And when that happened, that, that not only caused massive you know, instability to the Roman Catholic uh, claim on temporal authority, but to the core claim of papal infallibility. And so if you're a farmer and you're hearing about this sort of stuff, it causes you to say, hey, what else might I question? Or if you're a, a German you know, city trying to figure out, should I join this Reformation thing? And should we get rid of the monasteries and seize that land for ourselves and take the money and perhaps redistribute it to the people? Um, it, uh, it causes me to question other things. And so very similar to the idea of not just speed and velocity of sharing ideas, but the nature was not only something new, but it caused me to question the core claims of authority. And you could make all sorts of parallels to core claims of nation-state authority that we're starting to see through the internet um, right now. But the thing I'd like to, I guess a salient point of that whole piece of context is that when we look at how these, these are profound, they're complex, they're super heady, difficult ideas. And they had always been challenged historically through closed door academic debate and dispute, but now they could be printed. And when they're printed, as you're pointing out, they achieved this velocity. And the velocity of the spread of ideas they achieved wasn't around reproducing the old media, it was around a new form of media. And so the best way to communicate that core challenge to papal infallibility, you know, Martin Luther was, you know, uh, was a professor of, uh, of the Bible and philosophy, right? But instead of printing, instead of printing core academic disputations, he printed these the only way to describe them accurately is to call them memes. There were these fluke shrift and pamphlets, which just had images, right? And a couple of the images that he used were seared into the popular imagination. It was, you know, one was uh, one well-known one from on the the depiction of the papacy in 1534 is around, you know, peasants uh, flatulating, that's a fancy academic word for farting in the general direction of the Pope, right? Or another one is where they're defecating or, or pooping into the papal tiara. And probably most wild Wait, of Josh, all is- for, for our YouTube listeners, I'm going to actually pull these up because you, you sent these to us and I was super intrigued. This, these are like images of, of demons pooping, of peasants um, uh, farting in the presence of the Pope. Um, describe these pictures. Vile, yeah. despicable. <laughs> yeah, there's I unholy mean, there's, to my uh, modern no, sensibility. It is, absolutely, it is absolutely profane. And they're saying, hey, we, we know that this institution has no real power. It's making claims of authority that it doesn't have. And so the whole thing comes crashing down. And the, the best way to express that wasn't in a fancy Latin 
a disputation that only a few people could read, and it wasn't even in vernacular German that more people could read. It was by this woodcut or this copper etching where it shows, you know, 16th century German farmers essentially pulling down their pants and, you know, farting out clouds of gas towards the Pope, basically, and saying, this is how we, this is how we deal with these false claims of authority. We, we don't recognize these. Or another one is where they're literally pooping in the, the three-tiered papal tiara, saying that the claims you've made are false, and that's unholy. It's actually antichrist. It's one of the reasons they thought the world was going to end. And so the best way to repay that is you're pooping almost as a holy act. You're doing that to show people how, uh, how ridiculous the nature of the claim is. And then the image on the left, if you're looking at that, you see a variety of demons, and it's called the birth of the papal curia. The demons are pooping out the, uh, the various bishops and cardinals, and there's one Medusa demon with snakes in her hair, and she's suckling the, the pope, and you know he's the pope because he has the, the three-tiered uh, papal tiara on there. And so this is what Martin Luther, you know, he engaged in a great deal of, you know, fancy academic disputation. But essentially he was saying, hey, the spiritual hierarchy is illegitimate. These claims of authority are not legitimate. And he flattened it with a doctrine called priesthood of all believers, which essentially said there's there's no mediation in this philosophical or theological realm. And so instead of making that argument in disputation, he made it with this image, with a pooping demon pooping out the Pope. And uh, that, as you might expect, um, was much more pot. Anytime you engage in like mass you know, culture, it always degenerates into eschatology, right? And so it's only a matter of time, I guess. Um, but the point of the story is these images were wildly popular. And once, and for a reason, once they're in your head, you can't unsee them. They're and viral. It's not, they're they're viral. viral. And they're literally So memes. Martin Luther was like just like printing out these images, these memes, and then distributing them to, to the peasant class. And the peasant class, though they were illiterate, though they were poor, they instantly caught the message that he was sending and, and caught the narrative. Yep, yep. And actually, he operated within a network, kind of an informal community, which had different ties of affinity and value and information. I mean, you, you could almost think of it in terms of a guild's not... I mean, the best historical analogy of it is a DAO. It's this informal self-organizing network around value and information. And so this was his... This was So he was working with a printer. The illustrator was an artist that he commissioned called Lucas Chronic the Elder. Um, there are specific printers in the network that printed off-grid and skirted KYC. They were incredibly popular and they were, they were these communal events. You know, people opened them up in taverns and they read them. And even if you weren't literate, you got the idea. And we underestimate the the individual at that time. They didn't just get the idea that, ha-ha, it's funny to be pooping in a papal hat or that the demon's given birth to the Pope. They understood the core idea that this spiritual hierarchy was illegitimate and you need to flatten it. And sometimes you need to you need to use profanity, I mean, even scatology as a, as a very intentional weapon. That's very similar to the, I mean, the, the memes you see today, everybody, no one likes the unicorn because it's pretty. It, it means something else, right? The unicorn means, you know, ethereum or it means decentralized or ultimately it means, you know, agency and autonomy. That's why people resonate with it, not just because they like the colors. If any bankless listener thinks that meme culture started with the internet, let's zoom out here and, and realize that meme culture perhaps started with the printing press, right? And the reason why these little graphics of demons pooping work so well was because you didn't need to be literate. You could see the image and you could feel it. It was an emotional response. And inside of this very primitive disgusting image 
was deep, deep meaning about the world that these people lived inside. And it was spreadable. It was viral. Everyone resonated with it. And the reason that everyone resonated with it was why it worked in the first place. And when we talked about early in the, in the, uh, the dark Middle Ages, the late Middle Ages, about why revolutions were so easily stamped out is because they didn't have viral technologies. And the printing of these memes allowed people to band together under a common banner of fuck the establishment, fuck the hierarchy, it's illegitimate. Uh, and it's this technology that allowed people to band together under this shared banner, like unveiling the cloak or drawing the curtain back and showing that the emperor has no clothes, but also showing that everyone else also sees the emperor without no clothes, which is critically important. Josh, I want to take us down a side quest uh, real quick after this, but I want to give you the floor one last time before I do that. Oh, sure. Yeah. Let me just uh, finish this up. And there's actually another layer to it, too, in that uh, in that even these Internet memes that you're talking about, you know, they're silly and it's, you know, kind of common material. That was also something, you know, if you go back to the Reformation, typically you're printing you're printing kind of holy texts or sacred texts. That was what had dominated the Middle Ages. You're not you're not you're printing things that are are religious or sacred and meanings defined within that sphere. And so when you have the rise of this double entry bookkeeping and a rise of a new class and they're sharing these ideas, the ideas they're sharing aren't just profane, but they're also they're also common in a technical sense, meaning the 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 job you do, the finance you undertake, the things you do in the world are are worthy in and of themselves for uh, to be rendered as ideas that you share or as art that you might uh, that you might commemorate. And so this rise of the common outside the the approved was uh, was an incredibly important and, and powerful notion. And that was also Luther on this this doctrine of vocation where, you know, you just didn't serve God by being locked away in a monastery. You could be out in the world with your family and your friends and your community and undertaking commerce. And that was a good and honorable thing to do and and worthy of being commemorated. And so as that took rise, you know, as you trace the story in, you know, throughout the 16th and 17th century, you have the, the rise of uh, proto-capitalism and the low countries that powers the whole empire. And so likewise, again, you get art, which is endemic to the nature of the technology technology, these, you know, these, these fruit bowls that are everywhere because the common itself is worth rendering and it's, it's holy. And so um, this was all driven by the meme. And it's really important to understand that as you're, you're flattening that hierarchy, um, you know, that's a, that's a sophisticated argument that never took hold before. And essentially, you know, woodcuts of demons pooping did something that the, the emperor and all his armies couldn't do. They took down the Roman Catholic Church. And, you know, each time the, the art and community expression is endemic to the nature of the technology. You know, in the 14th century, you have, you have you know, frescoes with hyperrealism coming out of, you know, new fintech. You have meme-based woodcuts coming out of information technology. And then you have rise of mercantile class with, you know, hyperrealistic you know, common is actually being holy in Dutch realism. And so that's sort of where the story typically ends. If this were, if this were a lecture and you started out in centralization and you've looked at these technologies which decentralize and radicalize value and information in terms of rendering them without permission, what happens next is my real area of expertise, which is wars of religion and, you know, chaos and Armageddon breaks out for a while. And then the pendulum swings back and it swung back into rise of the nation state. And that, that characterizes our age down until today. Um, and then I guess my argument or the parallel that at least I see is instead of having separate religious and political hierarchies or cultural and religious hierarchies um, that are that have become uh, 
that are going to unwind over time into a period of chaos through ledger-based tech and information tech. We have a nation state where these two things are fused together, and that's the exact parallel moment we're in now. So hopefully that kind of ties off the story and, and sets us up for a side quest. Just to draw one last comparison for the listeners is there are two memes for me that come to mind, two modern day memes that come to mind that are intentionally meant to make the receiver of the meme question authority. Uh, and one is money printer go burr, where that is a direct assault on the legitimacy of the dollar and the value of the dollar, perhaps the world's largest institution these days. Money printer go burr, the dollar is not sound. Uh, another meme that comes to mind is that uh, Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself. Uh, that's another one where, where people are saying, hey, like we don't know what happened, but fuck you, we also know what happened. Like We know that Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself. Uh, there are powers that be that are masking uh, they are masking the truth and reality, and we don't know what they are, but it doesn't matter because we know something is going on here. And these are, and the reason why these memes are shared is because everyone, the populace, resonates with them. Uh, and so I just wanted to drive that one last connection before we move on from memes. I love just uh, on the meme topic too that I, I just did a Google search for money printer go burr, and there are so many variations, so like many. permissionless homemade variations of the same meme that this cannot be stopped. It cannot be deleted from the internet. If it ever was, I mean, the people would just create new ones and propagate it. And it's something that is completely unstoppable by authorities, even if they wanted to stop it. It's a perfect historical parallel. That's what, once the once authorities engaged in that sort of uh, exchange, uh, it, things went they went viral. They remixed. You had compendiums. He had once it was permissionless. Everybody was doing different versions of of demons pooping. I mean, essentially, money printer gover is the historical analogy of you know demons pooping in a papal tiara. It's a uh, it's taking a sharp knife and pricking you know at at the source of authority. In the Middle Ages, it was the Pope. For us, it's the dollar and the fiat based dollar, the nation state. I think it's perfectly historically valid. Right. And Josh, something you said earlier was that all of the armies of you know alter, uh, of uh, Pope competitors couldn't do anything that a demon pooping, uh, that a, a pooping demon could do, right? And like, we all know that the power of the dollars is uh, upheld by the power of the US military, yet it is pricked by a money printer go burr meme. Uh, absolutely, absolutely fa fascinating. Hey guys, I hope you are enjoying the podcast episode with Josh so far. This is such a fun episode and I'm really happy that we were able to draw some of these really crazy cool connections. What comes next in the second half of this podcast is we talk about the comparing and contrasting of Martin Luther and Satoshi Nakamoto and what happens when somebody did something without asking for permission that really questioned the ability of the establishment to maintain control and also was a very in intentful political statement that took, took down the authorities. Uh, and then we, Josh does a fantastic job guiding us through the rest of these comparisons while also leaving the bankless nation with a bunch of very specific actionable items. Now, if you believe this narrative, if you believe that this comparison is true, how can you better prepare yourself to take on this revolution rather than the revolution dictating your life? What can you do to front run the revolution and have that revolution work for you rather than against you? Really, really appreciated Josh coming on to the podcast and sharing this perspective and also leaving bankless listeners with some actionable takeaways. So stay tuned for the second half of this podcast. But first, we have to take a moment to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make the show possible. MetaMask is your go-to wallet for the bankless journey. If you're going bankless, you need MetaMask, period. Browser and mobile, get them both. 
This is your tool to unlock the world of DeFi. Here's my favorite part. Now you can swap tokens directly in MetaMask with a single swipe. This has got to be the easiest way to trade Ethereum tokens. Choose a token you own, a token to exchange it with, and get your quotes. If you like what you see, you hit swap. That's it. What makes swaps so useful is what happens behind the scenes. It compares DEXs, aggregators, and market makers to find you the best price with the lowest network fees and the least slippage. This means you can swap a wider range of tokens and swaps can even automatically split up your trade to give you access to better liquidity. You don't even have to think about it. Try it out. Download MetaMask for desktop or mobile now at metamask.io and start swapping. Balancer is DeFi's most powerful automated market maker. Typical AMMs just have two tokens inside of one liquidity pool, which can lead to fractured liquidity across the many pairs in DeFi. With Balancer, you can access the full power of multiple tokens inside of one single AMM, which unlocks an entirely new playing field of possibility. This makes Balancer an awesome building block for so many different use cases. Balancer pools can make asset indexes, but instead of paying fees to portfolio managers, Balancer lets you collect fees from traders who use your portfolio for liquidity. Additionally, Balancer smart pools can be programmed to have properties that change according to predetermined rules, such as changing the swap fee based on market conditions, or even liquidity bootstrapping pools, which can help you launch and distribute your token with day one liquidity. At Bankless, we used a liquidity bootstrapping pool to sell our BAP t-shirts to much success. Balancer V2 brings powerful new features that makes your money work even harder for you. In V2, idle tokens are capable of generating yield in DeFi without sacrificing liquidity in the pool. To top things off, Balancer is reimbursing gas costs with BAL rewards, meaning that your gas fees are reimbursed up to the cost of the transaction with the Balancer governance token. Balancer's mission is to become the primary source of liquidity in DeFi by providing the most flexible and powerful platform for asset management and decentralized exchange. Dive into the Balancer pools at pools.balancer.exchange today. Josh, I want to take us down a, a quick rabbit hole here because I, I think we would be remiss if we didn't finish up the, a conversation on the Renaissance talking about uh, the Protestant uh, Reformation, the Protestant Revolution, and uh, Martin Luther's pinning of the theses onto uh, the, the church. Uh, and so just, just as, a, uh, just as a, a backstory, Martin Luther really kicks off the, the, the Protestant re Revolution by uh, basically publicly... Uh, doing something to publicly acknowledge the illegitimacy of the church, talking about how the, uh, the, the tithes that are being paid is just is really just corruption. And, and what Martin Luther was doing was saying the church is corrupt, it's illegitimate, I'm, I'm, pinning my, I'm nailing my theses to the door. And to me, I see a lot of parallels between Martin Luther and Satoshi Nakamoto. Uh, and so I want, to, <laughs> I want to drive these comparisons uh, behind you and ask, ask you how well do these two figures resonate with each other. And the, the through lines that I see is that neither Satoshi nor Martin Luther asked for permission. Both of them took it upon themselves to make a political statement and to also empower a revolution. Both, both sp uh, sparked a process of creative destruction of old corrupt institutions hmm. in order to create a decentralized network of new institutions where the Catholic Church is a centralized top-down hierarchy and the Protestant religion is a decentralized bottom-up organization. And they also both created a Cambrian explosion of forks where as soon as we forked away from the Catholic That's Church really and good. the Catholic Revolution, 
the Protestant, one of the, the th reasons why the Protestant religion never took over is because people forked that and then forked that and forked that and forked that. And just like how we went from three canonical television channels to three million YouTubers, the mar and, and also what Satoshi did was go from one canonical blockchain or one canonical, uh, you know, the dollar to an infinite explosion of blockchains. All of these parallels are coming together to me. How does that land with you? That's, that's, I, I, couldn't have said that better. I think that's spot on on a number of levels. I would have, I would have, I would have taken longer to get to that point. I think, and I mean, I also, I personally, like my personal thesis is also that Satoshi, like Luther, was a deep industry insider who knew in his conscience that this had to be done, um, even begrudgingly knowing what deep consequences it would bring from, you know, unintended consequences as you long-term destabilize these power hierarchies. Um, and it's necessary and exciting, but not something to be taken lightly. And so regardless of where you fall out on that, both he and Luther you know, were able to kickstart this network effect and, and really convert people and create a zealous following, partially because the thing they unleashed had a power to itself. With Luther, no one could read the Bible. He rendered it into common vernacular, so people could actually have direct access to the source code, and that took on a life itself. And the same thing with Satoshi, like by having economic value through code which doesn't require permission, um, that that allows you, that, that thing has a power in and of itself. And so I think that's, that's, I think we'll look back on Satoshi the way we look at Luther, you know, 500 years from now, quite honestly. Maybe we'll know who, who or what he is by then. Maybe not. Maybe the not. analogies are incredible and we have already covered so much. So I'm going to return to the roadmap that we set out to at the beginning of this episode. So we talked about really this pendulum uh, switch where in the Middle Ages, we had this era of um, economic disempowerment, lack of self-sovereignty, lack of freedom, this era of centralization, top-down authority. And then the pendulum swung in the other direction in the Renaissance, in the Reformation, to self-sovereignty, to the rise of the Medici class, the crypto natives of their time, if you will. And all of this was catalyzed by uh, two really important technologies. The first was a ledger technology, double entry bookkeeping and the propagation of that standard, of that shared myth, if you will. And the second was the printing press protocol, this new communication protocol. And these two technologies together sort of shook the world. And I think that like, if, you know, as we transition to uh, the era that we're in now, which maybe we'll call this, I don't know what historians will call it into the future, Josh, but let's just call it the nation state era, the era that we're in. I just want to take a minute to say that the nation state era is a much, it's a more centralized um, era. I think we've swung the pendulum in the other direction. This is a bit more like the middle ages than an era of decentralization and freedom, but maybe we're on the cusp of something new and we'll get to that. But I, I just want to mention that um, we have so much to be thankful for. All of the freedoms that we now enjoy, the fact that we are not um, agrarian peasants with absolutely no rights, the fact that we have a bill of rights, and the fact that we have a constitution and um, democratic processes, we can thank the Renaissance and Reformation for those things. So I don't want us to put ourselves in the position of you know, a, a 12th century peasant. We're doing much better than a 12th century peasant. Yet at the same time, I think many who are listening to the Bankless podcast, many who live life uh, today in Western society, feel this sense of um, disenchantment, feel the sense of um, I'm not in control, feel the sense of something has to change, the power structures are illegitimate, and um, 
this is not good, right? So we feel in some ways like that 12th century peasant. So tee us up. We are now, and the pendulum has switched in the other direction, though we are building on some of the freedoms that we established in the Renaissance and Reformation. We have centralized in these top-down nation-state type structures, and we are on the cusp of something new, a new renaissance, maybe a crypto renaissance. Tee that up for us now, Josh. Where are we at this juncture in history? Yeah, I think that's spot on. And that's really, that's a great way to to describe it. Um, you know, it's not as overt that we have, you know, a medieval lord telling us how, what we can do and what we can say and, and what we can share. But you definitely have the pendulum swinging back and forth. And it may make, you know, ticks and talks moving in a direction. You know, the, the theorists talk about thesis and antithesis and synthesis. But the, the point of the story is that, you uh, is that yeah we absolutely have moved back to centralization and so uh, in the Middle Ages you know hypercentralization, uh, Renaissance and Reformation this unwinding there's a period of chaos after that which is characterized by wars of religion and all sorts of uh, all sorts of chaos um, and in that vacuum the nation state found itself and the nation state ultimately co-opted many of those same tools double entry bookkeeping and you know printing press um, and that was how they that was uh, that was essentially what characterized the rise of the nation state as we're here today it's it's very similar you can think of history it's a heuristic construct meaning don't confuse the model with the thing itself but it's very good in terms of explanatory power um, saying that we're in a centralized you know period right now it just may be more subvert or covert and not as obvious as it was before. And then even within the micro, the the micro, you know, dynamic of it, where technology had started out more decentralized and is now increasingly uh, centralized, whether it's AI or FANG, um, there's there's a micro ticking and talking back. So yeah, I think the moment is very similar to what we saw in the latter Middle Ages. People didn't know what was going on. There's a general sense of unease. They knew that things were hierarchically orchestrated and that they didn't have the agency that they wanted to have. Nonetheless, there was a burgeoning of different types of technology, which uh, which were fundamentally different than we had seen before. And I think that's the exact point we're at right now. Can we talk about those technologies then? It is still early. And I think people uh, don't realize, to your point earlier, Josh, how early we are in the trajectory of these technologies, in the trajectory of the internet. The internet's what, you know, two, three decades old, you know, maybe four at most, and certainly hasn't been mainstream for nearly that long. Uh, crypto is a decade old. These technologies are just being born today, but already we see the seeds of change that they might bring. And one is, interestingly enough, a communication protocol, the modern printing press, an unstoppable permissionless protocol that allows us to communicate all around the world. Um, and the second is this double entry bookkeeping solution, this immutable cryptographic ledger that they've created. What seeds of, of change do you think uh, we will see as a result of these technologies? Is this Are we at kind of a, a junction point in history where we're about to enter a, a new thing, a different kind of renaissance, a digital renaissance, a crypto renaissance, if you will? Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely the case. And so that, that point's very well made. That's Historians will look back, you know, 500, you know, when we think of the early modern era, we think of the printing press, and, and that's what characterizes that age. And we think that's what, uh, that's what gave us a number of the, 
the liberties and uh, individual rights we have. And that was the high point of technology. And up until recently, up until a couple decades ago, that still was the high point of technology, right? The printing press that lasted for hundreds of years and characterized the the ability to share information and engage information and mass media, you know, the newspaper for hundreds of years. And so historians a thousand years from now or 500 years from now will, will look back and say, things changed fundamentally with two different distributed technologies, just like they did in the Renaissance and Reformation, coming into finding their feet in the early 21st century. And they'll, they'll, they'll have academic debates and conferences trying to parse out the exact year. Was it 2021 or was it 2020? Maybe it was 2019. We don't exactly know. But no, that, that's, that's, that's absolutely the case, that, uh, that being able to share information in mass, we did that previously through printing things on paper. You know, the internet itself yeah, you know, I, I think Arweave is a great example of this, right? Like this permaweb where, you know, the the Arab Spring won't happen again because there's kill switches on that. That's not the case with this next generation of, of communication protocols, which are cryptographically hashed. And so we've never had, from a historical perspective, the opportunity or technology that allows the the rise of the sovereign individual as a sovereign unit of value, much less information, that hasn't ever been the case before. We approximated it in historical analogy in the Reformation, but this time I think we're going to do it at scale and in a magnitude of order. The change from the latter Middle Ages to what we have today is it's going to be a magnitude of order larger, the change that we're in the middle of now between what's going to come when we look back. And that sounds kind of odd to say, but Ironically, paradoxically, um, historically, when you're in the middle of a middle change, the bigger the change, the more difficult it is to to understand the significance of it at that point in time until you reach a breaking point. And so, uh, I think we're in, in a, a massive change, and that's why we only have these these kind of hints and, and riddles about that general disillusionment, an idea that value can be communicated without permission. In our gut, we know it's important and we know it's big, but we, we can't yet imagine the societal transformation, its transformative impact, just like the, the medieval farmer couldn't yet imagine the idea of, of bookkeeping and what a mercantile class would actually mean, um, and et cetera, et cetera. I don't know if that's online with what you're thinking. I think there's one significant difference that I see between the Renaissance. Now we have to differentiate between the Renaissances. So the Renaissance is in the 13 and 1400s in Europe, and uh, the crypto Renaissance that we believe that we are embarking upon is that the original Renaissance, the, the Renaissance of, of Italy and Florence, uh, that had an epicenter where it bled out from. The ripples bled out from Europe out to the rest of the world. With the crypto renaissance, there is no epicenter. It exists on the internet. You can tap into the renaissance wherever you are on the world, which means that the magnitude is perhaps greater, but also the velocity and speed of this revolution can happen instantaneously because we don't have to wait for this renaissance to uh, ripple out to uh, the rest of the world. Everyone can access it equally from across the whole entire world. That's, no, that's absolutely a great point. I mean, in the in academic circles, you can actually map out the nodes on the network with the printing press and how ideas are disseminated. And you see it geographically kind of spreading slowly over time, year after year, decade after decade. Yeah, that's a great point. The velocity this time is hyperbolic. It's a um, yeah, magnitude of order, faster, greater velocity. And I think fundamentally societal impact as well, where previously you had the rise of a new class, and that's great, but the majority of the population is still agricultural, but at least you could do something new if you wanted to. Um, this time, 
literacy isn't just five percent; it's it's uh, it's much more significant. And so I think we, you know, if the Reformation was this crucible where you had all these pieces in the pot at the right time, you know, powered by technology, um, which prevented it from being tamped down, I think we have you know a very similar situation. Just with with uh, we're doing it with plutonium this time. So, Josh, I'm hoping you can paint a picture for the Bankless listener and perhaps even specifically the younger people who are part of this digital revolution. I think most of this digital crypto revolution are younger people, but specifically talking about the Zoomers and the millennials who feel more specifically um, rejected from modern institutions and are specifically looking for optimism and opportunity in a world where there doesn't seem to be churn. And so if we can extrapolate what it was like to be like a farmer in the dark ages versus a a renaissance man in the 1400s and extrapolate that into, you know, young people coming out of college who are looking to find their place in the world and they're not seeing the opportunity that they really want to see. How can we give these people this optimism about the future that I think is coming with this whole crypto renaissance, drawing the parallels back from the old renaissance, of course? Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's, uh, I, I think they're right not to rely on institutions of the time. The people who made out the best uh, during their last re- Renaissance and Reformation were those who, who intentionally broke from the institutions of power and forged out on their own way and, and embraced the technology, both communication and financial, to, uh, to improve their own social situation. They, they essentially opted out of the, of the system of hierarchy. That was the first time they had the, the opportunity to do that. So it's always, it's always difficult and scary anytime you're in that situation and you're breaking away from what has happened before and what your friends and family are doing, but those who moved first had a disproportionate and asymmetric advantage uh, advantage to do so. So the, the overall optimism would be that it's very difficult to put the genie back in the bottle. Historically, once these types of technologies are out in the world, they tend to unravel power hierarchies. It's just how it, that's just how it works over time. And so you want to be on the right side of that. By all means, don't, don't latch yourself to one of these power hierarchies, particularly at this moment in time. Step out and, uh, and engage with the technology uh, itself. and uh, Explore the frontier, as we say on the Bankless Podcast. Yeah, explore the frontier. And there's some very specific things that they can do around that rather than just being like totally philosophical philosophical around it. Um, You generally want to lean into it. So let's get into them, Josh, because I think a a lot of people at this point in the podcast might be persuaded. They've listened to enough (laughs) bankless. They've they've seen enough that's going on in crypto. They know the current situation. Um, They're they're believing the story, right? That we are in this junction uh, in history, this point in history where we are transitioning from an old set of institutions and a centralized set of institutions to a new set of institutions that are decentralized. And so they're wondering how to be ready for that, right? How to position themselves in the Medici group rather than, um, you know, those that are are kind of left behind the by the technology. Seat. Yeah. So we want to be part of Martin Luther's crew and part of the future and not part of the past. So you put together some action items for us. And this is the last piece of our roadmap that we want to run through, which is some concrete ways that people can get involved and get ready for this crypto renaissance that might be coming. The first that you mentioned is engaging in crypto art. And it's so interesting that you put art as number one. Talk about what people can do and why engaging in art, crypto art is important. No, that's, yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And and back to your earlier point about, you know, optimism on this, in case I didn't hammer this clearly enough, all three of these action items kind of flow from the idea that, 
you know, rarely do you get an opportunity to to participate in something, you know, so meaningful on a historical scale where all the cards are being reshuffled, right? And so take advantage of the opportunity um, by all means. And so I know you guys like action items, so here are some here are some uh, some particular ideas. So crypto art. So if you believe this historical narrative, then then you would conclude that NFTs are real and they're here to stay, and that really art is the culmination of, and that actually they're the culmination of popular art using distributed technology. And historically, each culture expresses its identity as an art endemic to the nature of that transformation, right? And so, you know, aka new tech goes hand in glove with cultural transformation and emerging art. And so in the 14th century, you had this ledger-based tech, you know, finding its feet with a version of AR and VR, this hyper-realistic Renaissance fresco. 16th century information tech, uh, you know, found its identity in using this uh, this art in a version of meme warfare, the demon pooping flugschriften, right? 17th century financial trades rise in mercantile and proto-capitalism found beauty in the mundane around the sacred with Dutch masters doing these fruit bowls. At each time, the art seems at odd. It just seems odd to the power holders, right? But they eventually adopt and then appropriate it. And so you want to get in on the right side of it, not just for rallying around community, but uh, but uh, purchase it, participate in it, you know, buy early. It's, it's not, it's not, it's not something to be taken lightly, as silly as some of the things may seem. It's very funny. Uh, David and I on uh, One Bankless Podcast Weekly Recap actually just replayed sort of the reaction from the Good Morning America crew. Uh, and they were trying to describe what NFTs were, and they were laughing about it. It's like, so somebody is purchasing an image on the internet. How ridiculous is that? This is a fad. This is kind of just going to go by the wayside. You're saying ignore that noise. Ignore the old legacy media institutions, because if this crypto renaissance is coming, um, this art is going to be important. It makes sense that people art NFTs would sell for, for millions of dollars. And you're encouraging people to get involved and figure out this crypto art movement. Yeah, the art actually might be more important than the finance, which sounds crazy to say. Um, but I, I think there might be something to that, or at least, or at least they might they might be the same thing at the end of the day. If if crypto is really a means of societal transformation, you know, the value access and information access is important. But being able to communicate that object of value, not as a byte representing a mark on a ledger, but as something that has meaning in and of itself, might be more important. Um, you know, said differently, like, look, if you're 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 millennial, you're a Zoomer, and you're like, what am I going to do, right? Uh, maybe I'll I'll buy some stock. Okay, I'll buy I have a Fidelity account, a Robinhood account. Once you realize you don't actually own that stock anyway, but you just have an IOU, then you know, what am I going to do? Maybe Coke or GE? Nah, Tesla might be more interesting. Well, maybe instead of Tesla, I can I can use these NFTs and cross collateralize them, right, and actually yield from that. Well, now I can you know f- find whatever floats my boat. I can do that with you know Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles if I want to. And so finding maybe an NFT about Tesla and Elon Musk. No, exactly, exactly right. So now I'm now I'm finding something. If it's all arbitrary anyway, and turtles all the way down, it shared consensus, and this is the technology <laughs> that allows you to do it. Why not find something that has meaning for you and for the community? So it, it actually might be the same thing, particularly when you start doing things like NFT fi, and you're able to cross collateralize off an NFT instead of a protocol. I think this just might be a historical aberration where we see these things as different things. I think NFTs actually might be the real thing itself, long term, long durée. 
so fascinating. Okay, that's number one. Get involved in the crypto art scene, the NFT scene, if you will. And of course, all of these technologies combined. So NFTs as finance are the same as, as DeFi as well. Um, you can get involved through a DAO. There's all sorts of ways to plug in. All of these things um, have a certain amount of confluence. But let's talk about number two. Uh, this is super interesting. It's something we also preach on Bankless, which is your action item is for people to prep with crypto. What do you mean by prep? Yeah, this is this is a uh, you know in a nutshell, just expect some serious upheaval, cultural and geopolitical. Um, and on one hand, you know that seems like an easy prediction to make, but it's especially salient in from this historical perspective. Each time you see a technological and cultural shift from aggregation to disaggregation, things get really interesting, really dicey. You know, it's not just fourth turning type of stuff, but this long durée or these mega century trends or super trends colliding. Um, it's not based on generational turning or calendars, but on technological impact with which the pendulum swings from aggregation to disaggregation and then back centralized again. And during that swing back from chaos to co-option, things tend to get really dicey. And so... Yeah, I'm based in in Kentucky, and so prepping is kind of a way of life here, I guess. Um, but the point is, you know, prep with some digital assets instead of just canned corn this time. So, you know, put uh, get some digital assets, put some in cold storage, make sure your NFTs are on permaweb, right? This is a way to get ready for political upheaval, societal upheaval is having these assets in a place, being in control of your private keys. That's what you're talking about here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even taking it as far as being able to hash things out with paper and remember a seed phrase. I mean, it's uh, I, I wouldn't. I know it sounds kind of crazy and tinfoil hatish, but I, I, I definitely give some serious thought to that. It's a side bet, which I think you'd be on the right side of history making. Um, especially, you know, if you're a zoomer and you're talking about the next 30, 40 years. Um, yeah, I'd expect some serious upheaval at that point. So I, I definitely use crypto as the means of prepping. That is definitely not a fringe idea on Bankless. Thank you for articulating <laughs> it in the way you did with a concrete action step. I hope people are listening. Let's get to the third. This is important as well. And this is working for crypto, maybe working for DAOs. Are you talking about, uh, yeah, what are you talking about here, Josh? Yeah, so essentially find a new way to make a living. Um, and so if you think about the late Middle Ages, you're a farmer, maybe you're a monk, and then when the monasteries are dissolved, everybody's, meaning the cities take back over them and the Reformation takes it back over and they're, they're open back up and people go back into the workforce, you know, what are you going to do? Um, some people went back to farming, but some tried to find new ways to make living and, uh, and essentially availed themselves to the new technology of the day. They became printers or they, they engaged in that double entry bookkeeping and became financiers. And so, you know, if this mega trend is aggregation to disaggregation, the mini trend is really around financial financialization versus disintermediation of things. Um, and so, you know, Gen X doesn't know what a 401k is and millennials never left elementary school without one. Um, so the, the basic idea is that the dialectic between social acceptance of building wealth versus Dadaism of sharing experiences is kind of a false construct. You want to do both at the same time and try to do it without relying on institutions. So find a new way to make a living endemic to the new technology. So work for a protocol, uh, uh, create NFTs or get good at appraising them. There's things coming online now around just knowing subject matter and beginning at appraising. And if you don't own that stock anyway, you know, find something that you find interesting and, and get good at that, whether it's game-based price discovering or if you can't code, 
you know, work for a DAO, right? And if, or, you know, if you aren't timely enough for Polka markets, then, you know, listen to Audius or run a Helium node or, or you get the idea. We're going to start seeing crypto moving from entities like DAOs that employ people around finance to being core business models around things in the real world. And so if Web 2.0 is about rendering people as products, this crypto turn is about turning people into, from community members into co-owners of the things. And so when you see things like Audius and Helium, I think it's a, that's, that's kind of a, a foretaste of what we're going to start to see. If you're listening to music, do it on a platform where you own part of the platform through a, a token, right? Or if you're, if you're running a node, you might, not just a, a hashing node, but running a Wi-Fi or LoRaWAN node, run a node or set up a little side business around doing that as a side hustle um, where you're, you're playing around with things. I guess the overall point is you don't just have to code and you don't just have to stake. Yes, you can work for a DAO and you should absolutely do that. That's like working for a financial house for the first time, like uh, part of the Crypto First Medici, but also explore these other things in the real world that are backed by crypto. You guys talk about, you know, a DeFi mullet. There's also a, a real world mullet where crypto is the back end business model of these other things, whether they're music or, or, or IoT nodes. My big takeaway from this is that I first got into crypto just as a side gig along my normal job, right? Where I could keep my foundations. I didn't have to just wipe the floor clean and commit to something that was risky. I was able to build out my first podcast, POV Crypto in Parallel, just like how Ryan started actually the Bankless Newsletter in parallel with his main gig. And then we actually started the Bankless Podcast again in parallel. And all of a sudden, Bankless became ready for us to commit full-time, right? And we never actually had to commit to it full-time originally. Uh, and so you don't have to jump in with two feet. You can put a toe in first and go from there. And the other takeaway that I've gotten from these three action items, you know, engage in crypto art, prep, and work for crypto, is that you could actually do all of these things all at once, right? There are some platforms that really cohere all of these things together. It's just like you were talking about like with Audius, for example, if you like to make music and deploy it on Audius, not only are you just doing the thing that you like to do if you like to make music, but you're also earning tokens for doing so. And you can hold on to those tokens and therefore you are both working for crypto and prepping with crypto and also doing something that inspires you. The amount of surface area there is for people to figure out how to do these things is almost infinite, right? And it's just a matter of you figuring it out. And thankfully, the Bankless Newsletter puts out Tactics Tuesdays every single Tuesday. So you there <laughs> just go into the Bankless Archive and find something that works for you because the reason why the Bankless Newsletter exists is to help democratize access before we even knew how to articulate it, democratize access to undergoing this new crypto renaissance rather than having it undergo you. No, that's great. Absolutely. Well said. Well said. Do you know what it feels like, Josh, is uh, this is not in your action item, but it feels like the worst thing you could do is just like bet that the past will be the same as the future and just go with the flow of what the institutions and uh, those generations who came before you say is the path. That seems like it could be particularly hazardous at this juncture in history. <laughs> oh, that's so good. No, that's that's absolutely right. If you widen your gaze, I mean, it, the the problem with history is that you're always subject to your own experience, right? So you're a Zoomer and you're saying, hey, I, this is all I've known and it's going to be this way in the future. So I'm going to continue to be disillusioned, blah, blah, blah. But if, if you widen your gaze back and say, no, no, this this tends to happen historically um, these these institutions become undone, a new opportunity opens up, and and people benefit from that, and it's a very bright future. Um, that's what the past actually teaches us. One of the other things that teaches us is that 
change doesn't happen all at once. It's, it's a slow culmination that reaches a breaking point, right? And it happens very quickly. And so when you're in the middle of something where water is flowing very quickly around you, it might be a fad, but it actually might be something fundamental in societal transformation. And so that's what happened last time in the Renaissance and Reformation. We talk about it over the period of 100 years, but that's a, it was immediate. It was one year after another year after another year. FinTech was coming on at the same time. Printing press was coming on, and Luther was nailing this up and you know the monasteries were dissolved that's it happens very quickly and so you always want to be asking yourself is this something fundamental or is it a little fad and i believe you have more than enough evidence now to look back and say this pattern fits a historical pattern where the pendulum swings back and so you know even if you think even if you don't believe a word of this podcast you know say, you say all these guys are cracked it's still worth making a side bet on it, right? Because it's like asymmetric returns. If you're wrong, you're silly, you learn a new technology, you think differently about the way you work and about art and identity. But if you're right, getting in early on something at this scale is uh, is fundamentally transformative to your position as well as your community. So don't don't miss the opportunity. Josh, this has been phenomenal. Uh, we just we just I think I told a story that has never been told in crypto. Never. At least I've never heard it this uh, techno-historical perspective on the crypto renaissance, this new movement. Maybe that's the title of the podcast, Dave. We haven't talked about that yet, but mm -hmm. this, this is such a pivotal time in human history. And I really appreciate you articulating this and even, even leaving us with some action steps so people don't feel like helpless, like just victims of the next thing that's going to happen. There are actual concrete action steps that we have in this episode to help you. Uh, Thanks so much for spending your time with us and sharing this story, Josh. No, this is an absolute pleasure. And if I could leave the listeners just with one thought, it'd be that, you know, a thousand years from now, historians are going to look back on this point in time today and say, this was, this is the moment the world that was, was changed into the world that, that is to become. And it's going to be a date just like 1492. Everybody knows the year we're going to look back on 2020 or 2021 and say, that was the moment at which our horizons fundamentally broadened to include this new world. So, so thanks for taking a breath and appreciating the moment, guys. Really appreciate it. Josh, I think thank people you. Thank who... You, Josh. Yeah, thank you. And I think people who listen to this podcast might be hungry for some more information or more thoughts from Josh. Uh, where can they follow you? Where can they keep up with your work? Are you even publishing this type of work? What are you involved in these days? No, this was new. So we've been doing a, a you know, crypto investment. This is things that have been rattling around since my, my dissertation a number of years ago as it, it's been unfolding in real time. So I, I haven't really clarified the thought outside of this conversation with you guys. But I, I do dabble in it here and there. Twitter at Joshua Rosenthal is probably the easiest uh, way to get a hold of me. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you, Josh. Bankless listeners, the action items were actually included in the show this time. So we don't have to go over them once again. Just re-listen to that last section where we talked about the three action items that Josh left us. What a fantastic episode. Of course, risks and disclaimers. Crypto is risky. ETH is risky. Bitcoin is risky. So is DeFi. But staying with the status quo also seems like it could be risky. Of course, you could lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but thanks for joining us on the Bankless Program.